0: The amount uh, that is there today traps as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding on the earth every single day.
1: Finance is the biggest solution and private finance is the biggest piece of that puzzle.
0: In certain
2: urban centers, the back alleys are becoming unsafe for humans to walk down them because of the heat that's coming out of the buildings with air conditioning. And unless we can change the way those cities look by adapting so that the city can function, then that city will become uh, uninhabitable.
3: This is the UN Daily COP27 podcast, otherwise known as The Lid is On. I'm Connor Lennon.
4: And I'm Laura quinones I thought you changed a name, wasn't The Lid is Hot?
3: No, you hated all my suggestions, so <laughs> we're back, the lid is on, or just the even more boring UN Daily Cop 27 podcast. I you didn't it. like Sharmel Shaken Not Stirred, <laughs> and you were very sniffy about a Good Cop, Bad Cop, so if you can come up with something better, please do. Here we are, another day. Another day. Another place. We're, yeah,
4: we're outside.
3: Because it's a bit warmer out here. Yeah. It's quite nice, actually.
4: It is, it is nicer. It's a little cold in our office
3: this time of day, yeah, it's good to get out of the air conditioning, um, and the sun is down, so I'm not going to get burnt, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, nice. it's busy as well, isn't it? It seems busier than yesterday. We thought it was going to quiet down a bit after the world leaders summit.
4: Last year in Glasgow, that's what what happened, right? The world leaders left, and everything kind of quiet down a little bit, but today, I, I think I saw more people than I saw in the past three days here.
3: I think so. And it's the first of those uh, so-called thematic days, and uh, the theme of the day is finance. So, I mean, you could argue, I guess, it's all ultimately about finance. So, you know, much, much of the wrangling in the negotiation rooms is about climate finance. And that's the money needed to help developing countries adapt to the crisis and take steps to bring down emissions. And this links into loss and damage, of course.
4: Adaptation.
3: All that money to compensate the countries and the people who are suffering most from climate change. So today we'll be hearing what Asian investors and consumers think about this topic, about finance. And also we will find out why this money should go to local authorities who are really on the front line when it comes to dealing with things like flooding, wildfires and other effects of the crisis. But first, this I think was the the big one for us today, wasn't it? This initiative called Climate Trace, which stands for Real-Time Atmospheric Carbon Emissions. And there was some real eye-opening data today. So uh, just a bit of background, this is a group that uses satellite data and artificial intelligence to accurately monitor emissions from a wide variety of sources, including mines and power stations. Former U.S. Vice President turned climate activist Al Gore is a member of Climate Trace. He introduced the findings this morning after some introductory remarks from U.N. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres.
5: It is impossible to effectively manage and control what we cannot measure. Timely and granular data on the sources of the emissions is essential, but we are still lacking a full picture. And many significant sources of emissions are not yet on our radar in real time. Climate Trace will be ushering in an era of radical transparency for emissions tracking. You are making it more difficult to greenwash or, to be more clear, to cheat. Climate Trace and its data show that because of under-reporting of methane leaks, flaring and other activities associated with oil and gas production, emissions are many times higher than previously reported. And this should be a wake-up call for governments and the financial sector especially those that continue to invest in and underwrite fossil fuel pollution. The problem is even greater than we were led to believe, and that means we must work even harder to accelerate the phase-out of all fossil fuels. Climate action must be guided by science, data, and facts. Thank you for helping to reveal the full picture of the challenge that underscores the need to act and act
0: We are causing the climate crisis by uh, spewing 162 million tons of man-made global warming pollution into that thin shell of atmosphere around our planet every day as if it's an open sewer. It is not an open sewer. It is a very thin shell. If you could drive an automobile straight up in the air from the ground, you would get to the top of that blue line in about five to seven minutes. Below you would be all the greenhouse gas pollution. It lingers there, it accumulates, and the amount uh, that is there today traps as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding on the earth every single day, 365 days per year. That is a lot of energy. The problem. The sources of the greenhouse gas pollution are multiple. Uh, They come from uh, agriculture, conventional agriculture, mining, the burning of forests, uh, now the beginning of the thawing of the permafrost, but the largest source by far is the burning of fossil fuels. We found last year, shockingly, that oil and gas production emissions were about double what they had reported to the United Nations with new data on the flaring and the methane leaks. We we now estimate that the actual emissions are likely three times higher than what they have reported. The top 500 sources emit more per year than the United States. And 51% of those emissions are from power plants. Half of the top 50 globally are oil and gas fields. This is the self-reported CO2 equivalent emissions. That include CO2 and methane. This is what the actual measurements show.
3: You heard the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. So what do you think of Al Gore and his explosive sound effects?
4: Everyone at the plenary was a little bit shocked. But at the same time, they were curious. They're like, oh, my God, he definitely captured everyone's attention with that. Um, and I think, obviously, he was trying to say it's it's 6,000 atomic bombs. It's the same heat of 600,000 atomic bomb- bombs a day. Um, so I think that's, that was very powerful. The tool itself, it, it's like I think it's groundbreaking in the sense that uh, we're using technology to actually see how much um it's not about countries. It's about individual uh, companies.
3: Power stations. Uh, there were all kinds of things, weren't there? And, and yeah. it shows you what kind of emissions. And and it's very accurate. It's taking aggregating data from all these satellites. And greenwashing popped up again. This was a, a buzzword from yesterday because both the Secretary General and Al Gore said that it, it's harder to cheat. It's harder to make these greenwashing statements, because anyone looking at this website can see exactly what the emissions are, and they're much higher than we've been told.
4: Yeah, a lot higher, and a lot of these, uh, for example, these net zero pledges ha- hadn't talked about like how much methane uh, they were also producing on top of the carbon. And so, <laughs> when you see the map, the, the methane just adds so much more emissions and so much more heat to our atmosphere, which Al Gore said something really beautiful uh, this morning and it was that um, the, the the atmosphere is so thin that we think we think it's like huge, but you know it's so thin that you could you could go across it with a car in eight minutes. It's
3: a good tool for negotiators because it allows them to see exactly in what region, in what country, in what city the emissions are are most powerful and most dangerous, and then they can decide where they're going to direct this finance to mitigate those emissions so it does all again link back to finance it can be tricky to talk about the subject with get, without getting technical very quickly it gets technical but it is it's technical it's complicated especially when you get into the details i was lucky enough though to speak to two experts who were able to quite clearly explain some aspects of the different challenges involved. And it was very illuminating. Let's start with Anjali Vishwamohanan. She's the policy director at the Asia Investor Group on Climate Change, which creates awareness among Asian asset owners and financial institutions about the risks and opportunities associated with climate change and low-carbon investing. The region is one of the worst affected by climate shocks. Think of the Pakistan floods, for example. But many Asian countries are still relying on coal to fuel power stations. And I spoke to her about the level of awareness that people in Asian countries have about the climate emergency and the challenges involved in convincing the public and private sector to move to a low-carbon economy.
1: A lot of the major cities in Asia that people are living in are becoming unlivable. So, for example, in Indonesia, they're shifting the capital from Jakarta because... You never know. I mean, in a few years, if there is not enough action, that entire land could be submerged in water, which is which is the case for many major cities in India, including uh, Mumbai, Delhi, and a lot of other cities all over Asia. Uh, these are sort of uh, real uh, threats that people are talking about, they're worried about, and this needs to translate into action from governments, from financial institutions, from all stakeholders that are able to do something about it, and investors are a very big part of that puzzle, because as you'd see in conversations around climate, finance is the biggest uh, solution, and that it's basically what can propel action everywhere, um, and private finance uh, is, is the biggest piece of that puzzle. Uh, governments, uh, in, international organizations, everyone is sort of working together to find tools that could bring in private finance, and investors as well are working and coordinating together with governments to find these solutions that could make the flow of finance easier from both sides.
3: And yet Asia was singled out by the Secretary General as uh, as a region of the world which is still uh, seeing coal as an important fuel source. Uh, why do you think that is?
1: I think Asia as a region contains some of the largest emerging economies currently uh, and the and these countries are forced to uh, deal with competing priorities right now, which includes both uh, development needs, but then also transition, uh, transition needs, developing a transition plan and acting on it. These countries have invested a large amount of money um, and their economy is largely invested in coal right now. So it will take some time for these countries to transition out of it, which is why there is a fear to commit at a global level on on fossil fuel transition. But there are ways to sort of move around it. So with the G20, the conversation in Indonesia has largely been about early coal phase-out, which would mean that there needs to be both public and private money that goes into early coal phase-out transactions. Which would mean that it, it, that it shouldn't be a cost that these governments have to take on themselves. Because as you see in a lot of these emerging economy cases, these governments or these countries are not responsible for where the world is at right now in terms of emissions. So they should not be forced to bear the brunt of the finance that needs to go into uh, you know, transitioning these projects out because they, it, at the end of the day, they are balancing a lot of competing priorities, and the only thing that could sort of speed up that process is climate finance.
3: So, you'd agree that uh, there does need to be a much faster movement of capital from the richer countries, which have been responsible for, for this, to developing economies? Exactly. Even if those developing economies are now also uh, polluting more as they develop.
1: Yes, because at the end of the day every country wants to be a developed nation, they want to be able to give their citizens the access that the rest of the world has access to right now and and all of these are competing priorities. And if you don't have access to finance, you're not going to be able to balance all of these competing priorities simultaneously. So money that needs to go into uh, mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage needs to come through international climate finance support. And I think that is the, the biggest topic of the of COP27 as well. And I hope there is a lot of traction on it in terms of commitment. The 100 billion goal that was announced uh, in 2015 is, is not enough. Uh, and the more that we delay on, you know, ensuring that this flow of finance is there, the higher this amount grows. Because every year uh, the physical risks increase, so that, that pool of money that these countries need to combat uh, both mitigation and adaptation will also increase. Uh, so, climate finance is is the need, is the need uh, of the day.
3: That's Anjali Vishwamahannan from the Asia Investor Group on Climate Change on the importance of getting finance for adapting to the climate crisis and cutting emissions to developing countries. But there is, of course, a question mark over where exactly that money should go. And it's a key argument within this loss and damage debate that's shaping up to be one of the big stories of this COP. David Jackson is the director of local government finance at the UN Capital Development Fund. Actually, in a previous role, he was responsible for that nice park next to the London Eye on the South Bank. He told me that the money needs to go to the local authorities who need it most, not necessarily to national governments.
2: All climate adaptation is inherently local, Local governments and local institutions are those who have the mandate and the responsibilities to deal with what needs to be done to make your life safer, to adapt so we can deal with the 1.5 degree change in global temperatures, which is coming, sadly. Therefore, adaptation finance should be local finance, not finance for global or national institutions that have regulatory functions, but not implementation functions.
3: And is this being widely understood amongst all the partners who are here, the member states, negotiators? Because we're talking big picture here, aren't we, at COP? We're talking about adaptation means getting the finance to the places that need it, to the countries that need it, which is, well, pretty much all countries, not just developing countries now. Is it widely understood that this money has to be distributed at a local level?
2: No, sadly not. And the reason is that the negotiators at COP are essentially uh, national ministers, people from national governments and their outlook is essentially sovereign. It's focused on mitigation and it's all a a, a lot of it is about greenhouse gas emissions and whether we need or don't need fossil fuels for our national development paths. Whilst they're focusing on that and playing the politics of country versus country they're forgetting that in their own countries it's gonna be 1.5 degrees like it or not and where you live is going to be emptied. Right, it could be New
3: York, it could be Vanuatu, it could be Pakistan,
2: anywhere. Exactly, where you live is going to be emptied and the entity that will make your life safer are those local institutions doing your land use planning, doing your water management, your drainage, your irrigation, uh, your building standards, your agricultural methods. These are local institutions and that's where the money has to go for the adaptation.
3: Okay, so let's be clear, even if we we talk about 1.5, keeping 1.5 alive, but 1.5 degrees rise in global temperature is still going to be catastrophic for many, many
2: people. It is catastrophic, and it already is becoming catastrophic. We just need to look at the fires, the flooding, and the changes that are happening around us. It's catastrophic in particular for certain parts of the world, uh, urban and rural, and we're already seeing climate migration. Certain parts of the world are becoming uninhabitable unless serious adaptation is taking place. This is not only rural areas, it's also urban areas. In certain urban centres, parts of the world, the back alleys are becoming unsafe for humans to walk down them because of the heat that's coming out of the buildings with air conditioning. And unless we can change the way those cities look by greening the concrete, adapting so that the city can function in temperatures much higher for longer periods than they are now, because the 1.5 degrees is an average then that city will become uh, uninhabitable.
3: That was David Jackson from the UN Capital Development Fund making the case for climate financing to go to local authorities on the basis that they're the ones that are going to have to deal and are already dealing with the mess that the climate crisis is causing. Okay, so let's get back to some of the other things that were going on today. And I think it's the first time that we've seen a big climate protest inside the blue zone today.
4: Yes, it was a pretty big uh, protest actually. It was right when you, after you will check your accreditation to get in, then you start hearing this chance to stop funding fossil fuels stop funding debt. Puzzles! Stop funding fossils! Stop funding Stop and it was very powerful and it captured the attention of everyone who were here at the main square right where we are recording right now actually Um, and uh, yes I kind of missed that from last year and we saw two characters that we saw last year at COP26 as well they have traveled all the way here Pikachu
3: And the dinosaur.
4: Of course, the dinosaur can.
3: You've got to have the dinosaur back. (laughs) Another story that we looked at today, which was quite interesting, a sad story uh, from UNICEF. They put together a poll, and this was uh, an African youth poll. And it's about the number of people that want to have children and the fact that it's really... Diminished as a result of climate change. I think was it only two in five people, young people now, say that they want to have children.
4: Specifically in Africa. It, the, the, it's a trend that's happening in, all the, in the whole world, um, but in Africa it seems uh, to be more um, prominent.
3: Well, that's on our website, the UN News website, as is, of course, your story. We should plug your story a bit more, shouldn't we? Your story, the big roundup of the day on the front page of the UN News website. And uh, very shortly we'll have a... Well, fairly shortly, we'll have the newsletter out. Tell us about the newsletter.
4: Well, the newsletter will have, of course, this podcast. So you can have the link right away. Uh, You can have the link of uh, our UN news story, the wrap, the cop wrap that I did today about uh, everything that happened related to finance. And as well as the Algo data, data initiative if you want more information. And then we'll have some of the prime content of our agencies um, and the photo of the day so I'm not going to reveal it if you want to find it just subscribe right now to our COP 27 newsletter
3: and if you haven't already like and subscribe this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms tomorrow it's a double header science and youth and we will have plenty to talk about so we better get on and you better get your newsletter done
4: yep I gotta go right now
3: <laughs> see you tomorrow